Well, it's a blessing to be here with you all this first day of 2023, and it's even a greater blessing to bring forth the Word of God. So would you please rise as we hear from God this morning. We will be looking in Paul's epistle to the Philippians in chapter 1, and we'll read verses 12 through 18. We'll hear now the reading of God's holy word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we confess even now that this is your word, but it is simply words on a page. Unless you, Holy Spirit, would come and make alive our minds, illumine our hearts. And so we pray, might you do that? Might we be a people this day who know Christ more clearly? Who, in fact, would then follow him more nearly? And, oh, Lord, we pray that we, in fact, would love him more dearly. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure how 2022 went for you, and I'm not sure what you hope for in 2023. But one thing I can assure you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't know what is coming later today or, in fact, later this year. But you can be confident of one thing. You can be confident in the gospel. You can be confident in Jesus Now, we're looking in Philippians chapter 1, and I know, or at least my understanding is you're not in the book of Philippians right now, and so I don't want to do a whole lot of background. Paul wrote this letter sometime perhaps in the early 60s, that is 60 AD, not 1960s as perhaps we might say it, but he's written to this church, and you might say, well, we're in Philippians chapter 1, there's only a few verses prior to this. How much context would you need? Well, quite a bit, in fact, because what Paul has suggested already to this church is significant. Paul has written to them with this theme. If you've ever read this book, there's a word that will show up over and over and over again, and it is that of joy. Paul is talking to this church and these believers, and he's saying, I have joy. I have joy in community. I have joy in In fact, he goes as far as to say such joy in our partnership in the gospel. I have joy in Christ. 
It's a theme of this entire letter. And so I want to try to unpack it and say, why can he be so joyful? And I think it's because he can be confident in the gospel. Now, I am simply a pastor. I am not a pilot. So I don't know if any of you are. You can correct me later if my illustration is off. But if you've ever been on a plane, my favorite part isn't so much the takeoff and the landing and all the other stuff in between unless there's good snacks. But my favorite part is when you first enter the aircraft. They, they used to do it. I don't know how much they do it now. But you, you would come in and every so often the door to the cockpit would be open. You, do any of you remember something like that? And you could peek inside, see all these colorful buttons. I mean, it makes you feel like a child. You'd like to go find out what happens if you push this button. And so you would, you would enjoy that time. I would probably be the one halting the line behind me because I would want to sit in. I'd want to find out what's going on. But, but what takes place in the cockpit? Well, you've got a captain and most times you have a co-captain. And there's this term that they would use upon takeoff or right before called v1 and what v1 stands for is it's the point of no return the plane has started and it's it's on the way down the runway and they've got the right temperature they've got the right speed they've got the right conditions weather wise and the pilot has to make a decision right here it's it's a v1 moment either we take off and we're ready for flight or we abort if we wait any longer there's a problem it's a V1, a point of no return. That's what Paul is saying right here in verse 12. He's early in this epistle, but here's the point of no return. He's letting these saints know either you are confident in Christ, you trust Christ, or you don't. You can be confident in his word, or you're not. But everything I'm going to tell you, Philippians, starts right here. I am excited about our partnership in the gospel, but we need to be clear. Who is Christ? Do you believe him? It's our point of no return. That's Paul's point, even in fact, in Galatians, if you've read it, that either Christ has done everything for you or he's done nothing. And that's where Paul is. Right here, beginning in verse 12. What confidence can you have in the gospel? I want us to look at it under three points. The progress of the gospel, the preachers of the gospel, and the people of the gospel. First, let's look at the progress of the gospel. You, you see it beginning in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, what is he saying? The, the gospel is moving. It is progressing. It's, it's on the move. It's advancing. But not the way that you, in fact, might think. It's not the situation, in fact, you might have thought of. Remember where Paul is. This is known as a prison epistle. Paul is not in a coffee shop writing this comfortable letter to this church. He is, in fact, in prison in Rome. Many would say it's his first imprisonment. And there's Paul. Perhaps Paul is uncertain of what is coming. Am I going to live? Am I, am I going to die? Will I ever see these brothers and sisters again? Will I ever get to talk to them? He can be uncertain 
And here's what he has to say. I want you to understand, brothers, the gospel is progressing. It's moving. It's growing. It is, in fact, advancing. And I have a feeling towards you. Now, I don't know how or what your story is in the Reformed faith, but that word never tends to get a lot of positive traction when you talk about feelings and Presbyterianism. We're not known for being feelings oriented. But what is Paul saying? I have a feeling. And it is joy. When I think about you all, I am in fact joyful. And he's already described it. You can read some of his joy in verses 3 through 11. I have joy. I'm thankful for you. I'm excited about you. I'm glad we are doing this together. Now, I want you to imagine that you are one of those Philippians. You know something of his imprisonment, and you can read about it later. They've already figured out he's been in prison. That's why they've sent him a gift. And they've received a letter. They've received a word back from Paul. And you could imagine when he begins with, well, I'm joyful. Well, this must be good news. Paul, something must have changed in your life. You were in prison in Rome, and, and now you're describing this place of joy. Something has happened. You can you could understand that they're probably almost on the edge of their seats. What is it that he's going to say? What has happened? How much greater can it be? And yet, what they perhaps would have expected, what you and I might have expected, is nothing of what Paul says to them, is it? He says, I'm joyful, and he doesn't say, I'm free. He says, I'm joyful, and I'm still in prison. I am in prison, but he knows something of the human heart, and he says, I want you to know this. Philippians, you're not, you're not looking at this the right way. You've got to have a different kind of perspective on things. You know, in seminary, my professor, he would always talk about Two kinds of views. The, the bird's eye view, that's a term you're probably familiar with. That, that's the aerial, the 30,000 foot, where we can see everything down here view. And then he would talk about the worm's eye view. And you can imagine what he's describing there. You're in the weeds. You can only literally see what's right in front of you. And what's Paul saying to them? You guys have a very worm's eye view. You can only see what's in front. And you hear me saying prison, and you're going, this is terrible. This is bad. And Paul's saying, you need to take a step back. You need to open your eyes. You need to see this bird's eye view that, in fact, God is in control. He's doing something. This is not accidental. This is, in fact, quite intentional. And you can be confident because God's in control. And he's given his word of truth. The gospel, you can be confident in the Lord. What you need, Philippians, what you need, Christians, is a different view of life. You cannot just look at your circumstances and conditions right in front of you. You need a bird's eye, kingdom-minded view. And so Paul is telling them, let me show you this bird's eye view. The gospel is progressing. It's moving. It's advancing. It's growing. How do you know that? Did you hear what Paul says? 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And you're going, okay, that sounds nice, but how so? What does that mean? What does he say in verse 13? So that, here's its purpose. How do you know it's been advancing? So that it, that is the gospel, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. It's being spread all throughout the imperial guard. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul was saying here. What the Philippians would have heard when Paul says that term, all ears would have perked. They would have peeked up. Say that again. Did we did we hear that correct? Who is he talking about? Your Bible might give you a footnote and say the Praetorian Guard. These are the elite of the elite of the elite. These are your these are your Navy SEALs, your your Green Berets, your Army Rangers. If we wanted to kind of help ourselves historically understand who is this imperial guard, they, they, are the, they are the private security firm of Caesar. They protect Caesar. And as time and history would grow, their responsibilities would grow. They, they wouldn't just look after Caesar. They would also look after other high-ranking officials. And eventually, they're going to look after high-risk prisoners. Here's what Paul is saying. And they know exactly who these people are. You don't mess with the imperial guard. If you're a, a boy growing up and you want to go to the army, this is where you want to land. You don't, you don't mess around with them. And Paul is saying, yes, brothers and sisters, the gospel has spread throughout the whole imperial guard. Here it is. Now, why is that a big deal? Because Rome is not some kind of Christian safe haven. If you're being persecuted for your faith, you're not running to Rome. It's not a safe place for Christians. They had categories, you understand, and how they evaluated religion. To put it in English terms, it, it's simple, legal and illegal. And what they would describe Christianity didn't even fit those two categories. They called it illicitas superstitio. And you could see the English translation there, couldn't you? Illegal superstition. You see, Christianity doesn't even make the ranks of religion. It's just a myth. You've got this mystical creature, person. His name's Jesus. He's not much help to you. And so what is Paul saying? It's not easy to be a Christian in Rome. If you identify yourself as a Christian in Rome, you are immediately Guilty. And Paul is saying, I understand, brothers and sisters, that's the culture. But this is what's happening with the gospel, even here. It's on its move. It's, it's growing. And it, in fact, is going. And so Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, there's a reason for my imprisonment. It's something more. It's, it's bigger than me. It has a purpose. It has to do with Jesus. And depending on how well you know Paul, you could read some of his account from Luke in the book of Acts. Paul's a Roman citizen. But you don't hear him saying, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. No, he, he stays imprisoned for the sake of the gospel because he's saying it's bigger than me. He's looking at it from above. It's almost as though 
Paul has a glimpse of the providence of God. And I don't know how well you know church history and some of the reformers, but there's an old English Puritan. He's a Presbyterian minister, actually. His name was John Flavel. If you're French, you might call him Flavel. But John Flavel, he's got a he's got a powerful statement on the providence of God. He says, the providence of God is best read backwards. Do you hear what he's saying? You can't say today, I know exactly what God is doing right now. You don't know what God's providence is until it in fact has already happened. And so some of you can perhaps look into your own life and go, well, you know, that's why I picked that university. That's where I met my wife. Or that's why I didn't get that house because we got this one or that job, a host of different things. You look at what God has done by looking back. And so what you can see with Paul is he's saying, do you, do you see something of what God is doing? I've, I'm in prison. And it's because he wanted to bring the gospel to bear even in this place. That's a powerful statement because he is writing that to the church at Philippi. He's already been arrested at Philippi. You can read about that in Acts. You arrested me. Do you remember what happened? And you can imagine they've gotten this letter. We've talked about it. And I don't know how it happened. Maybe word got spread around town. Paul wrote a letter. It's here. We're going to read it next Lord's Day. Gather together if you want to hear what Paul is going to tell us. And maybe that's what they did. They, they came to worship. Maybe there was an elder, got up and began to read the letter. And could you imagine what that would have been like? A church full of people listening to what Paul is saying. And here he is, he's reading. He's reading verse 12. He gets into verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You know, he would have had to stop. He would have had to consider, what did I just say? What did I just read? I've looked up. Probably somewhere back there. There have been a man. Perhaps tears coming down his face. Overjoyed. It's that Philippian jailer. That man remembers what it's like when Paul's in prison. And so he's sitting there going, that Praetorian guard didn't stand a chance. I know what happens when Paul starts talking about Jesus. It changes your life. And you could have imagined that's what it was like. He's under house arrest. Not like ankle monitor. Not like comfortable living. They're always around him wanting to know, what are you doing? And is it an approved activity? And you can imagine they, they've passed by his door. He's praying, probably writing some of the letters. Obviously, Philippians would be one. Probably preaching some of the truth to himself. They're picking on him. And yet that Philippian jailer hears this and he goes, mm -hmm. they didn't stand a chance. I know what happens when Paul preaches Jesus. We have a reason to have joy. Paul's saying, you can be confident in the gospel. When it goes out, it goes forth. It does not return void.
Secondly, the preachers of the gospel. Paul begins to describe these people. He says, some indeed, verse 15, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He's describing these different preachers, and he he seems to lose no confidence when he's describing these people who it seems have very ungodly motives, but he's not losing any confidence. Why? Because he's saying the end result is the same. They are still, in fact, preaching Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? Maybe we should first start with what he's not saying. Paul is not saying this is a false gospel. Paul's very clear in Galatians chapter 1. He doesn't mess around with people who proclaim a false gospel. He says it's no gospel, and in fact, you are a curse for doing it. So it's not a false gospel that's being spread. It's not false teachers or false apostles. He's very strong with the Corinthian church. What is Paul saying? I have opponents. They don't like me. They have their own agendas and, well, they need me out of the way to get it. And so they're selfish in their ambition. But yet they're preaching Jesus. And it perhaps is alarming to you and to me. Because you and I know that motives do matter. You've perhaps been in the church long enough. I'm probably not about to shock you. Pastors are sinners. Church leaders are sinners. You are sinners. Churches criticize one another. Denominations split over things like this. Selfish ambition. Motives matter. And yet Paul is saying, but Jesus is bigger than your motives. He's more important than your motives. He's greater than what you or I want. There are people who are jealous of him. There are some who love him. And I think what he's trying to say there is not so much they have a love for Paul, but they have a love for the gospel that Paul is trying to proclaim. He's saying it doesn't matter. This is all about the gospel. God will, in fact, take care of bad motives. We don't have to worry about that. What we want is truth proclaimed truthfully all the time. As often as we can get it. This gospel is not about us. It's not about me, about you. It's not about our circumstance. It's not about our condition. It's about Jesus. And Jesus offers you and me joy. There's a hymn. Maybe you have sang it. Maybe you know it. Glorious things of thee are spoken. That that last stanza. Do you remember it? I won't sing it for you, but I will read it for you. What does what it say? Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Do you hear it? That's what Paul's saying. You have lasting, solid joy in the gospel. It's not about this here and now. Paul's not just thinking about here and now. There's not enough here and now to give you such hope. He's saying you have a lasting joy, a lasting hope. 
because you have confidence in who Jesus is. It's an issue of joy. And Paul is saying, if, if you want that, if you want lasting joy, you want solid, firm joy, you got to do what I'm doing. You put the gospel first. You put Jesus first. I don't know about you. I don't wake up early in the morning super excited to open my Bible. It typically takes at least a hot shower and a cup of coffee, and then I'm mildly prepared. And hopefully children are still asleep. But it takes a bit. Maybe you remember his name, Jerry Bridges. He's written several books. But one of his phrases that he uses that is most helpful is, what does he say? He says, you have to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I want you to think about what he's saying. That's what Paul is getting at. You have to preach the gospel. You have to talk to yourself. It doesn't make you crazy. You have to talk to yourself. You can't listen to yourself. You have to talk to yourself. Why do you have to talk to yourself? Because if you listen to yourself, you'll believe what the world says. You know your human heart and its sinful desires. We've already confessed some of those sins, haven't we? That was natural. You didn't have to work hard at that. You have to tell yourself who is Jesus and what is he like. You have to preach truth to yourself. These, these circumstances and conditions that are in my life, they're not roadblocks. They're not problems. Paul's saying they're opportunities. God's not working in spite of them. He's using them to work through them. God didn't punish Paul by putting him in prison and saying, Paul, you know, you're, you're just a sinner. You're going to have to go sit in prison for a bit. And because you've disobeyed, I'm going to put you there. While you're there, though, I might as well do something for myself. That's not what God's doing. And you can see that. He's put him there for the purpose of the gospel. He does the same with you and me. We have all kinds of problems that we might call problems. But in the bird's eye, there are opportunities for, in fact, the gospel. And we can be joyful in it because we can be confident in the gospel. Lastly, the people of the gospel. We've looked at the progress, the preachers, but now let's, let's look at the people of the gospel. What is the result when Paul is preaching this gospel? What does he say? It, it's confidence. It's, it's boldness. It's, it's gospel responsibility. Do, do you see what he's saying in verse 14? And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is saying most of the brothers have become bold. They've become confident. They're unwavering because they believe in the gospel. They're doing so without fear. They got it. It's my responsibility. I must believe it. I must use it. I must apply it. They got it. It's not an easy lesson. You see, Paul wouldn't have to be talking about boldness and fear if they were living in comfortable times. I don't know about you. I have three boys, all young. Before we had our third, we nicknamed our older two Sons of Thunder that described our family dynamic. And so we announced the birth of our third son with lightning. Here comes lightning. Where thunder is, there's lightning. It's, it is fun. It's exciting. And it's terror. 
all the time. Do you know what I never have to tell my children when they're at home, they feel safe. I need you guys to take a little bit more risk in our house. I need you to try a little bit more aggressively. They have been as creative as I've ever seen to break things, never to fix them. I'm never having to tell my youngest, maybe you should take a leap off that wall. See what happens. What am I always having to do? Please think about your choices, son. It's not going to end well. You see, when we're living comfortably, when it's an easy life, no one's coming in saying, you need to be bold. You need to try. You need to show some courage. Because these Philippians aren't living in easy times. They're living under great persecution. And Paul is having to say to them, do you believe this word of truth? You need to be bold. It needs to be yours. You need to own it. You need to live in light of it, worship it, love it. Be courageous. That's what he's telling them. And perhaps some of you are already saying, yeah, but, but did, did you hear what Paul said? He said most of them got it. Well, what does that mean? It means most of them got it. It does not mean all of them. It does not mean every one of them. It does not mean few of them. Guess what it means? Most of them. So it does mean there are some who didn't. There are some who decided to live cynically. I don't believe it. I'm not going to do anything with it. I will choose to complain. I will choose to be discouraging. I will look for answers elsewhere, not in the word, but perhaps in the world. I don't think the Bible is enough. I need something else, maybe science or something else. But I'm not going to put my hope all in what Paul is saying here. I would rather be mastered by fear than my father in heaven. There were some like that. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There are some in our world, perhaps many, just like that. Not all get it, but most of them. That's what Paul says. Most got it. It was their responsibility to share the gospel with boldness and without fear. And you're going, how is that possible? How does that work? What would cause something like that to happen? Well, Paul is given a, a, a little bit of an appetizer, a teaser. He said, remember, know this, brothers. That the gospel has already gone throughout the entire imperial guard. But in case that's not sufficient to show how powerful the gospel is, you can keep reading. Flip over to the very end of his letter in Philippians chapter 4. He's giving these final greetings and listen to what Paul says. It's almost like you would think it's an afterthought. Here's what Paul says in verse 22. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. We have two categories of people now, don't we? The gospel has gone throughout the entire imperial guard, and it's now in Caesar's household. And you're going, why do I care? Do you know who Caesar is? It's Nero. Do you remember Nero? 
One historian says that Nero had a plan. He was going to burn down part of the city, the, the slums. And people figured out about it, and he squashes the narrative. Remember who Nero blames it on? Christians. This is Caesar. This is Nero. This is where Paul is writing. It's the same Nero who has all kinds of parties at his house. His gardens were something to be seen. And he had nighttime entertainment. Do you remember how he lit up his gardens? He tarred Christians and lit them afire. Paul is saying, yes, the gospel is in that man's house. And it's on the move. How can we get it? Because there is no place the gospel cannot go. There might be a place you don't want to go or I don't want to go. But there's no place the gospel cannot go. That word can, it's, it's a word of ability, of power. There's no place on planet earth that the gospel cannot go. You and I might not want to, but it in fact can go. And here's Paul saying, you can be confident, Philippians. That's where the gospel is. This unlikely place. Nobody would have thought that. An unlikely people. Nobody would have thought that. And the gospel is there. You brothers and sisters can have confidence to speak the word of God with boldness and without fear because it's not your word. It, in fact, is the Lord's. And I think Paul is trying to drive that home. He uses a word that perhaps you don't recognize in your English translation when it says in verse three, uh, 13, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's, that's okay. But the Greek there isn't is for Christ. It's in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's one of his major doctrinal issues for all of the New Testament is this union that you and I have in Christ, with Christ. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have such a union that the Father in heaven looks at his Son and he looks at you the same way. The way he feels about Jesus, he feels about you. The way he thinks about his Son, he thinks about you. The desires that he wants for his son, he wants for you. That, that's this union that Paul is so deeply concerned about. It's such a big deal that God can take a persecutor of the church, one who tried to kill Christians and make him a pastor. There's great hope for you. There's great hope for me. You can be confident in the gospel. It's not your gospel. It's not on you. You're not in charge of the results. It is, in fact, the Lord. But you do have to ask that question. Are you in union with Jesus? That's where the confidence comes from. If you're not united to Christ, you have no confidence. You have no hope. The lasting, solid joys that we spoke of, only, only Zion's children no, you must be united to Jesus. 
Do you believe in the gospel like that? Do you have confidence like that? That God's word, in fact, will work? That your circumstances and conditions aren't barriers to the Lord working? He doesn't work in spite of, works through them? You know, we have that promise. Perhaps you remember it. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55. We love to use this verse. The word of God. Remember, there's a little bit of an illustration prior to it. As waters come down, as snow comes down, and it nourishes, it replenishes the earth. What's that promise that comes right after? The word of God will not return void. And then you and I, we, we tend to stop reading. But you should keep reading. Does anyone know what Isaiah says next? He gives this little agricultural, this farming illustration. Now, I'm not a farmer. Do not look at my yard. I have to get all of my insights agriculturally from the Bible. I'm terrible at this. But you know what Isaiah says? He talks about these trees. Do you remember? There's a cypress. There's a myrtle. But it didn't start that way. It ends that way. How does it begin? It begins with a briar and a thistle. Now, I've never seen anybody plant for a briar and get a cypress or put a thistle and get a myrtle. How does it happen? It can't happen unless you're organically changed. And Isaiah is saying, that's what God's word does. It takes dead people and makes them alive. And you and I can be confident in that. So confident that Luke records speaking about Paul at the very end of Acts, Paul is still under house arrest. What does he say? Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. What does Luke say next? They will listen. That's confidence. It's certainty. And you can have that in Jesus. That's how this whole epistle can be that of joy. Joy in Christ. Because it's not attached to your physical condition or your circumstances. It's attached to Christ and His Word. It's why it's a V1 moment. It's the point of no return. You and I must put our confidence in Christ we're not. You cannot go any further until you make that decision. But if you are in Christ, how confident are you? Do you believe that a briar can become a cypress? Because the word of God organically changes. It goes throughout the imperial garden, goes throughout Caesar's household, and it will go throughout all creation, even the places that you're thinking about right now. It won't go, yes, yes, it will. Because the gospel comes into us, it grows in us, and it goes through us. I hope that's true for you, not just today. I hope that's true for you for 2023. I hope that's true for you until he returns. And let's pray to that end. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we, we pray as a people who acknowledge that we are not in control. Yet we pray as a people who aren't left alone either.
you by the power of your spirit through the truth and work of your word are here and in fact at work. You remind us that you didn't create and let go, but that you are intimately involved. We just celebrated your incarnation. You're intimately involved in continually in every circumstance and condition of our life. We pray then that you would have confidence, not because we are wise or powerful, but because you are. And you have demonstrated such power through the person and work of Christ. Help us to be so confident in the truth of your word that we would use it. We would use it in conversation with ourselves and use it in conversation with others. That as your word through the mouth of Paul tells us that our life is of less importance. But it is purposed and tasked for taking the gospel as it would be advanced and proclaimed throughout the world. May we live like that people of the gospel without fear, preaching and proclaiming Christ with boldness and all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.